0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda
0: on Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Hello there, and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 1st of November. And on the programme today, we talked about the fact that there is two months to go now until the latest amortisation target for businesses with both more than 50 employees, but also with less than 50 employees. We caught up with recruitment expert John Fitzpatrick from Emra Talent. And also, we spoke to a lawyer who took your questions, Luke Tapp. He's the head of the employment practice at Pinsent Masons. Plus, we've all heard of phishing, but have you heard of quishing? Well, it's another technique that scammers are using to steal your data. We had a cybersecurity expert on the show to explain. And there is a whole group of hotels here in Dubai that were much fated to launch this year, but now quietly seem not to be opening. We dug into that with tourism consultant Ali Mansour from the CBRE. We also caught up with the team from Forward Keys because they have just issued their global travel trends report. And it looks like city breaks are growing in popularity. We found out more with their spokesperson, David Tarsh. And as Saudi Arabia are all but confirmed as the host of the 2034 World Cup, we got analysis from Saif Ruby, who's a football agent who does a lot of work in both the English Premier League and also the Saudi Pro League. Meanwhile, Robbie Greenfield, sports aficionado right here at Dubai 103.8, also, of course, presenter of Offscript, joined us with all the latest sporting headlines, including news of an indoor golf tournament that signed up both Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy. Intriguing stuff. We've only got two months to go now until the end of of the year. I'm not quite sure how that ran away with us. Uh, But there's also a deadline fast approaching for small and medium-sized businesses here in the UAE. And after doing a very quick straw poll of CEOs in the Emirates, it appears that not very many people seem to know about it. Basically, the 1st of January is the deadline for companies with over 50 employees to meet their commitment to employ 4% of Emiratis. But it is also the first deadline for companies with 20 to 49 employees who will also need to employ one Emirati in a skilled role or face fines. Now, we all know that the market for Emirati employees has got very competitive indeed. And I can only imagine that small and medium sized businesses might find it tricky to fill their quota. But let's fact check that with the experts or one in particular. Delighted to say I'm joined by John Fitzpatrick. He's the managing director of Emirat Talent and certainly an expert in this field. John, good to see you. Good morning to you. Uh, It's are, are small and medium-sized businesses coming to you to get help on this?
2: Uh, oh. Good morning, Georgia. Uh, thank you very much for inviting. Can you hear me?
1: I can. Thank you very much. That was a sort of cheer, cheerful jig that you just saw okay, on your great. team's link. Uh,
2: good morning to you. Um, in answer to your question, um, there was a bit of a crackly line. But um, yes, I mean, we're, we're having people come to us on a, on a daily basis. Uh, at the moment with their, uh, with their challenges and, and really seeking advice and clarification on, on what they have to do in some instances.
1: Are you managing to find lots of Emiratis and place lots of Emiratis in jobs? Or is it getting difficult?
2: Uh, well, the good news is, yes, we're placing lots of uh, Emiratis uh, from, from a business perspective. Um, it is getting more difficult um, month by month. And um, we, we, we've also got this uh, additional uh, pressure on the market where we have uh, companies from from 20 to 40 having to satisfy a one headcount, as you say, uh, by the 1st of January, uh, 2024. Okay. This is the issue. Um, and the to see that, uh, frankly, having to work uh, so much harder to find to find the results that we were getting a year ago, perhaps.
1: John, I'm going to ask if you could turn your camera off because I think it might improve our line, which is a little bit crackly. And since every single word you say is of value, genuinely, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, going to go with How's the words that? rather than the vision. Yes, thank you very much. That makes a big difference. Um, so tell me what Wonderful. what actually... If, they, if you're if you're a company listening to this, and you're like we're just we're just finding it really hard. Like we've we've put all the irons in the fire, but we just don't seem to be able to attract a national into our workforce. What advice would you give companies who are, who are struggling? What is it that Emiratis are looking for in the in the workplace?
2: Sure. Um, well, I think that one of the first things to do sensibly would be to leave your company. Uh, enough time to actually identify the correct talent Um, we're seeing a lot of clients at the moment um, come to the marketplace six weeks before the deadline four weeks before the deadline etc and quite frankly that that doesn't that doesn't leave enough time for the process to be observed and for the correct individuals to be hired for your business so Whilst we do have deadlines that, that, that kick in every six months at the moment, um, obviously with the next one being the first of January, um, then you know I, I would I would say that the key thing is to make sure you leave enough time to to source these people, and where where possible, um, then engage with the services of of companies such as specialist companies such as Emira Talent to help you in this search. I mean, the the whole arena of searching for UAE national talent uh, is somewhat different from um, expat hiring. Um, And and I think that's that's quite reasonable to assume, given the fact that only 10% of the population are indeed uh, UAE nationals.
1: I know that often in order to attract anyone, I suppose, to work for your company, you have to offer extras potentially. You know, if there are you know, if they're a much sought-after employee... Maybe you're offering them a decent, you know, a slightly better package. Maybe you give them gym membership, all sorts of potential sweeteners. And one of those might be, you know, the opportunity to rise up the company, to potentially work abroad. Now, that is something that small and medium-sized businesses are not really able to do. You know, if you're, if you're under 50 employees, you could almost be described as a startup. Do you think that that's going to make it harder for these smaller businesses to fulfill their quota?
2: Sure. Well, I, I, I think it's, you know, each, each each employee has their own aspirations and goals. And whilst you correctly identify that one of the key uh, kind of attraction factors for a larger organization could be the fact that it's a, a, an international practice and these guys are going to become international employees. Uh, which, you know, in, in the decades to come, will, will probably be extremely useful. Um, but to address your point, the the companies which are which are under which are uh, 20 to 49, yes, I mean they don't have that same kind of appeal as far as uh, you know in, in international opportunities. Um, but we would like to think that Emirates looking at these kind of um, you know bootstrap startup type organisations are quite entrepreneurial in themselves and will attract a different type of uh, potential uh, employee.
1: Do you think the mood is turning amongst Emiratis that, you know, that the, the their perspective is shifting? Because, of course, for many decades, everyone went to work for the government in some way. You know, it was, it was a safe job, great pension, you know, reliable employer for the rest of your life. You know, there's nothing better than working for the government in many ways. Great hours as well. Do you think that that perspective is now shifting, and it's kind of you know for graduates for example it's seen as cooler maybe to go into the private sector
2: yeah i th- I think the trends are changing and if you and if you just look at the stats um in two thousand and eighteen you had twenty seven thousand and fifty five um, emiratis in the private sector um, and now you have over eighty thousand uh, emiratis with with those massive gains really happening. Uh, over 2022 and 2023 um i think there are some really cool uh, kind of private sector companies um it, they, they they lend themselves for 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 different avenues of uh, growth uh, for emirates um but let's not forget there's there's a there's a there's a very uh, there is a, very tangible uh, kind of incentive to go with private sector companies at the moment, if you're an Emirati, um, and that is the um, the salary support scheme. So um, that that's that's, if you like, a, an added an added bonus, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah. The NAFIS scheme that updates people's um, um, uh, salaries—I think it's like if you've got a university degree, is it up to nine thousand extra dirhams a month? I think it's something like that.
2: Seven, I believe. Yes. Seven. Seven,
1: yeah, seven. Seven. Uh, well, that—I mean, that—that's a—that's an added benefit, certainly, and obviously, we do have the uh, unemployment insurance scheme now here for everybody yeah. in the UAE, uh, and uh, they are changing the sort of pension schemes as well in certain places. You can—you can see that changing across the bar. In fact. There is a press conference today happening at 11.30, which is being hosted by the Ministry of Amortisation. And I have a feeling that they are going to be announcing something about a new savings scheme then. Uh, But I don't know the details, and it is embargoed till 11.30, so we'll have to find out more about that. But that's certainly something to look out for. Well, John, if you are an SME right now thinking, how on Mm. earth am I going to fill my you know, fill my quota, ultimately, hire an Emirati in a skilled role in the next two months, how on earth am I going to do that? Would you have a good sort of three pieces of advice for them?
2: Uh, Yes, um, address this as soon as possible. Um, If you have the budget, um, slightly biased, then obviously approach companies like Emiratalent to assist you. Um, But if you haven't got the budget, and you've left yourself enough time, then make sure that you are, your your internal hiring team is connecting. It's about networking. It's about referrals. It's about recommendations. It's about going through this process in a granular fashion. So the key one is time. The second one is networks, referrals and recommendations. Um, And, uh, you know, and and from there, making sure that your proposition. What are they, what are, what are the, why are they going to select you as an employer? You know, I mean, you mentioned you mentioned benefits and, you know, potentially remuneration and things like that. And um, it appears that this particular segment of the market really wants to know what their progression is going to be and, and how that's going to fit in with their, you know, with, with, with their future plans.
1: John Fitzpatrick there, Managing Director of Emirate Talent. Thank you for sticking with us. We did have a slightly crackly line there, but John, it was great to get you on. And in fact, uh, we've had a message come through here from Hassan already saying, with regard to emiratizations, he is an Emirati himself, "Uh, welcoming, it is very important that we feel welcome and training is also important. Uh, Plus, the most important is to create that clear career path. So just as John said, Hassan is agreeing with that. It is all about that uh, clear career path and being made to feel welcome. Right, it is time for us to continue our discussion about that deadline, which is fast approaching. Uh, There are now two months to go until small and medium-sized businesses need to employ an Emirati. 1st of January is my understanding for the first deadline for companies with 20 to 49 employees. And they need to hire one national in a skilled role by the January the 1st, 2024, or face fines. At least that's what I have been led to believe. We're going to find out whether that is the reality uh, with Luke Tapp, who is the employment partner at Pinsent Mason's. Luke, thank you for joining us on Teams. Let's look first at this new regulation for the small and medium-sized businesses. What are the requirements? Am I right?
3: Hi, Georgia. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me onto the show. Uh, this is a really, really important topic. It's been a really important topic across the private sector all year, actually, because um, it's been applicable to larger employers, over those employees with over 50 employees within the UAE all year. And as you say, there's this new piece of legislation. It's, it was published a couple of months ago, but but it is um, coming into force, uh, as you say, with effect from the 1st of January 2024, uh, Ministerial Resolution 455 of twenty. 23, and it's going to require those smaller employers within the UAE um, to start employing Emirati citizens. Um, and as you say, that that the key question. Okay, it's effective from first of January 2024, but does that mean that companies of that size have to employ an Emirati before the first of January 2024, or does it mean they have to employ them during um, 2024? And and that's a key point, and 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 something I'm keen to discuss today.
1: Yes, please do clarify that because, of course, the ministry has been imposing fines on the larger companies for people who don't fulfil their obligations. So where does the date fall? Is it this 1st of Jan or is it next 1st of Jan?
3: (laughs) Exactly right in relation to the fines. And that's why it's such an important point, because the fines have been applied this year to to organisations that have been required to employ Emiratis and haven't done so So um, just in relation to that particular point, the way the legislation is drafted and the way that it's referred to on the ministry website, uh, both within the legislation and and the guidance on the ministry website, uses the word in. So it, it refers to employers employing Emiratis in 2024 not before the 1st of January 2024, but in 2024. So my reading of the legislation um, is that the requirement begins on the 1st of January 2024, but the particular deadline by which any particular company has to have employed that Emirati national is not clearly set out in in that legislation uh, and if if we look at the way the legislation has been applied to those larger companies in 2023 there are deadlines within the taltween reports that companies are accessing so um, the only way that any particular company will know its, its ratio of Emirati employees that it has to employ by a particular deadline will be the specific communication that that company receives receives from Taltween. So, actually, you or I can, could not give any confirmation of a particular deadline to, to any company because it's always particularised to, to each organisation. But what I can say is that the way that the law has been drafted and the way it appears on the website indicates that the obligation begins on the 1st of January 2024. uh, But but companies don't have to have employed somebody by that particular date, but they need to start employing somebody at some point during 2024 when that deadline starts to apply. And if they don't hit the particular deadline that the authority allocates to them, that's when the fine starts to to kick in.
1: So what would be... Your advice, because it might be that the companies think, "Oh, I've got another." What's Georgia talking about? It's not a two-month deadline. I've got fourteen months. I can carry on. But would you suggest that, nevertheless, people should get a bit of a chivvy on?
3: A hundred percent, Georgia. For many, many reasons. Um, one is, is is that that point I make that if we look at the way the authorities have managed it this year for the larger companies, uh, the deadlines. Uh, you know you can't assume that the deadline is going to be 14 months away the only way you will know what your deadline is and what your ratio is is what appears in your taltwain report so the first practical piece of advice is to make sure you're engaging um on, on this on the system the online um Taltween reports to to get the get get copies of those um so that you know exactly what it is that the authorities are expecting of your particular organisation uh, and the other point why companies really need to start moving now, especially those smaller companies, um, Georgia, and it's important they take your advice on this, is because there's a huge amount of competition for Emiratis. What we can say with absolute certainty is that those companies between 20 and 49 employees in the UAE private sector uh, in the onshore area will have to employ an Emirati at some point in the short to but the, the short term future and um, they, they will definitely have to do that and What we can also say with absolute confirmation is that there is a huge amount of competition for Emirati talent at the moment because of the way in which the larger companies have had to scale up their emirati participation so so companies need to engage with this they need to start developing recruitment strategies recruitment programs and to to ensure that they're able to attract Emiratis into the workforce so that they're able to satisfy the the quota that, that will apply to them at some point, as I say, in the short term future.
1: Luke, I'm being very naughty. I'm over time. So I've got 30 seconds to ask you this question. But the ministry is being quite strict, isn't it? You know, the new regulations have been around for a while for these bigger companies and many have been fined. Have you seen companies go through that fining process? You know, there's, there's not much wriggle room here, is there?
3: No wriggle room. Absolutely, we've seen it a lot. Many, many clients uh, have been uh, have been subject to the fines. Um, as you say, the authorities are playing a very strict um, policy and approach to the implementation of those penalties. So, um, as I say, the, the takeaway for the smaller companies is 100% engage, engage now. It's great that we're talking about this today um, because it gives companies a couple of months at least before the legislation becomes effective to start preparing themselves for this really important um, policy requirement that they simply have to comply with.
1: Luke Tapp, absolutely brilliant to have you on the radio. Thank you very much. One of the partners at Pinsent Mason's responsible for their employment practice there. Luke, thank you very much for that very clear description of the situation regarding the amortisation laws here. Welcome back to The Agenda. Georgia here with you until one o'clock and I am sure you heard of phishing. That is not, you know, not the broad one, the one where a scammer uh, uses email, WhatsApp or even just a, you know, a traditional phone call to try and access your data. But have you heard of, drumroll please, quishing, quishing, quite like it, doesn't sound too bad. Quishing. But in fact, it is the new scam on the block and it is rising. Now, a bit like phishing, quishing is looking to access your personal information. So let's find out a little bit more about it. Apparently, they are the the sort of quishing moments are increasing by a staggering 587%. That is just between August and September this year. OK, so what is it? Let's find out. Joined on the line now by Samir Basha, who is lead security consultant for the GCC at Checkpoint Software Technologies. Samir, you have overcome my dislike of talking about cybersecurity on the radio uh, by introducing a whole new thing to be scared about. Tell me what quishing is and why we need to worry about it. And then I'm going to get onto the subject of how we can, you know, avoid it. So, So go. Good to meet you, Samir.
4: Yeah, uh, thank you, Georgia, I'm very excited to be here with you. Now, uh, I will try to explain what Quishing is, the new name that is trending. Quishing is also known in the industry as QR code phishing. Uh, It is a type of social engineering attack where attackers, scammers, or fraudsters use QR code and try to trick, lure, or deceive uh, victims to reveal confidential, sensitive information like their passwords, their financial data. How they do it is that they hide uh, malicious codes or malicious contents uh, behind generally safe QR codes. And when uh, individuals, users, customers uh, scan this QR code, they are directed to a malicious website which usually impersonates a very known brand. It could be like your personal email brand, or it could be your social media brand. You you think that you know you are redirected to your social media website, and when you authenticate with your credentials, which is actually not, uh, you know, your real website. It is a impersonated mimic website. Then you share your credentials or confidential information with the attackers. Uh, to make it simple, I'll give you an example, Georgia. You know, we all visit restaurants, and uh, many of you must have noted recently in restaurants uh, they have uh, you know stopped giving you the menu card. Yes. Instead, they politely ask you to scan the QR code. Right. Yes. You it's have very. Seen
1: that? Oh yeah, it's very irritating. But you know, if you want to know what's on the menu, it's the only option open to you now, basically. <laughs> uh,
4: well, if you ask me, it's irritating for you. I see it's an amazing approach of going green, uh, saving uh, trees. Uh, you know, and getting into a more sustainable environment. But however, just imagine Georgia, you know, and and for all the listeners on the air, uh, imagine a fraudster or a scammer just changes the QR code, and it's very easy to create QR codes and make it malicious. Very easy. You don't need to be technically strong or need to be qualified to do that. It's very easy. And 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 I, uh, as a customer, now scans that malicious QR code and I am redirected to my social media website. And it says, please log in with your social media ID so that we can serve you better. And it looks exactly like my social media website. The same color, the same icons. But the catch is, it is not really my social media website. It is an impersonated website that the attack has created. And I'm hungry, you know. I might just give up my credentials because uh, I have been doing that. Uh, I access many third-party applications which are legitimate using my social media credentials. And boom, I'm scammed. I'm, I'm fished. And this could lead to many other attacks. You know, once they have my credentials, Probably I'm using the same password for everything. I am, I'm using uh, the same password for my banking, for my corporate. So I have given them keys to my kingdom. And... Uh, restaurant is just an example because i'm a i'm a foodie and as you mentioned there are several vectors of attack and you know it could be from your mobile messenger it could be on your um, sms and very recently we have seen many co- corporates in in recent months being attacked with qr code attacks and uh, as per email security analyst from checkpoint uh, every checkpoint customer has been attacked with QR codes, uh, phishing in the last few minutes, which means 1,000 attacks per month. And we're just talking about email vector. We're not even considering the other vectors from where phishing can come.
1: I have to say, it does sound very nerve-wracking, but you do first have to put your camera over that QR code. And the scammer has to sort of infiltrate that QR code. How are they doing that in restaurants? You know, if you think of a nice mom-and-pop restaurant there you know they're not going to start fishing for your data so how does that qr code become um i suppose uh different you know dangerous
4: the restaurant was just an example you know to explain people better and you know and because uh, this is where we see so there are you know many other places that they can do that in in malls in you know uh, could be that you know someone can just go and stick a qr code scan this for a free wi-fi and oh, just of course. scan and you know and, and download and, and you never know who put it over there. Mall, you know, uh, have you even uh, authorized or even verified who has put it over there. Imagine you're going to a event and, and we have many events in UAE. This yeah. is a, a season of events and and there will be a QR code that says scan this to get the agenda. Yeah. who has really put this over there? so or oh, scan you know. it
1: what would really tempt me is if they give me ten percent off and then i'm I'm in there like swimwear literally I'd be scanning my code ready to get my 10 percent off. Samir, I, I really have enjoyed your explanation. Thank you very much indeed. 30 seconds less to go. What would be your advice? Should we just stop scanning them all together?
4: Of course not. We defeat the purpose over there. We need to uh, innovate. So the best practice will be you know uh, we need to create an awareness for everyone for individuals the awareness should be done from by corporates they should educate their customers they should educate their employees and you know and if we you know create this awareness as we are doing you know georgia checkpoint in dubai on on air trying to create the awareness for your customers. So now these customers are going to, when the next time they scan the QR code, they'll be more diligent, you know, where, what they're redirected to or what they are downloading. And, you know, and if we create this awareness, we have solved the problem to a very large extent. And and also for the online listeners, we are coming into a holiday season and a winter where you will have a lot of, lot of offers coming in because it's a festival season. And just be careful. There could be one email that will be fishing and there'll be be QR code just be diligent keep changing your passwords if you get fished no problem report to the authorities don't use the same password for all the application try to sign in for multi factor uh, authentication there are many free services available online patch your devices don't use uh, pirated uh, software and and try to you know uh, you know install uh, security for your laptops and for your mobile devices which really needs to be protected
1: Great advice, Samir. You managed to fit a lot of information into a minute there, which I really appreciate. Yeah, quishing. It's a new thing and you need to look out for it. Samir, thank you so much for bringing it to our attention. Lead security consultant for the GCC at Checkpoint Software Technologies. Welcome back to The Agenda. Right, let's take a look at a really interesting survey Mm, It's about travel, basically. We all know it's back in a big way. The era of revenge travel might have passed, but it certainly doesn't mean that we're all staying at home. Apparently, a new study suggests that our adventures to foreign climes are starting to look a little bit different uh, because we are apparently choosing to go on city breaks rather than beach and sun holidays. And family and small group travel is also on the up. Plus, we're taking longer holidays rather than weekend breaks. That's all according to the Forward Keys Global Travel Trends Report for 2023. So what does it mean for our holidays and of course for the local travel market? Uh, Let's find out with David Tarsh who is a spokesperson for Forward Keys. He joins me now on the line. David, thank you so much for your time this Wednesday morning. Um, Lots of data to get through here. Uh, Let's start with this sort of surge in demand for city breaks for early Urban travel. Why do you think we're getting more excited about those types of holidays than a beach break?
0: Good morning, Georgia. Very nice to be with you. Um, I think the real thing that I would focus on here, and it's the biggest trend of all and the biggest trend in travel, is still the recovery from the pandemic. And effectively, uh, that's the trend. that that we're benchmarking against. So still one has to think about things as to where we were in 2019 and how we've come back from there. So what we saw through the pandemic and what we've seen since the pandemic is that beach and leisure have been the most popular type of travel. People have been certainly during the pandemic pretty nervous of going to cities, but now that's beginning to catch up. So, what did we see in 2023? Uh, we saw that there was a growth over last year of 26% in beach travel, but double, 52% in urban travel. But really, that reflects the fact that people are getting back to what was normal beforehand.
1: It is interesting how that uh, 2020 benchmark is still percolating sort of through the statistics, percolating through the travel industry. Because, of course, while us as holidaymakers, it might seem like it's been over for a long time, it was such a major issue for the tourism industry that, of course, it's only natural uh, that everything sort of is, well, you know, referring back to a certain extent.
0: Well, I think you're absolutely right. And if you look at just globally, you know, many people say, well, where are we? Because it feels different in different parts of the world. So globally... The world this year will get back when you look at the whole of 2023 to 75% of where it was before the pandemic started. But it's quite different in different parts of the world. So, what we see, um, you know, with China, for example, which is really still struggling to reopen, is that the Asia Pacific region, it's it's only got to about 52 percent of where it was. And and just before the pandemic, China was by volume the world's biggest outbound market. But life is very different in the West. So, for example, what we've seen is that the Caribbean has has done spectacularly well throughout the pandemic. It's managed to maintain its visitor numbers, probably because um Tourism has been so important to the Pari- uh, to the Caribbean, and if you look at travel in the the Americas, which includes the Caribbean, um, that's ninety three percent back. Um, the USA and Canada ninety seven percent back. Now you're in the Middle East, so I imagine you'll say, "Well, how are we doing in the Middle East?" Well, the Middle East is seventy eight percent of what it was um, before uh, the pandemic. Um, So it's doing pretty well. Um, Europe is just one point ahead at 79%. So uh, it feels pretty close to where things were.
1: How about outbound travel? Do your statistics show where UAE residents are heading in the coming months? You know, what's proving popular for us?
0: Well, what what we've looked at is not specifically the UAE, but we've looked at the Gulf countries as a whole. And actually the really big story in the in, in the Gulf is Saudi Arabia. It has done unbelievably well. If you look at, at how Saudi Arabia's performed, it's it's actually had more visitors uh, this year than it, it had before the pandemic, which is phenomenal. If you look at where people within the Gulf went, um let's say during the, the summer recently, Saudi Arabia was top seventeen percent more than uh than, than during the pandemic. And if you look at bookings for the fourth quarter, um it's in second place behind Thailand. So actually people going on holiday to Thailand, that's done that's really doing very well, thirty two percent ahead. Um but if you were to say why has Saudi Arabia done so well? Well there's a, a number of reasons. It's 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 been investing In the most incredible way in tourism Um, in building infrastructure in increasing flight capacity to different places in wanting to welcome visitors uh, saudi arabia has has been charging ahead and it's also been helped by the fact that you can now get an e-visa to saudi arabia it makes it a little bit easier to go there and it did very well from religious tourism so uh, a lot of people went for the hajj earlier this year Uh, and also for Eid.
1: I'm interested about the impact that the extreme weather that we saw in Europe this summer. I'm interested to know what type of impact that has had on destinations such as Greece. Uh, And of course, I think there were wildfires in Spain as well, weren't there? Uh, Have those countries bounced back? Because of course, particularly for Greece, the tourism sector is hugely important to the economy there.
0: Uh, Georgie, you're spot on tourism. It's really important for countries like Greece and Portugal, which have done actually since the pandemic incredibly well because they have recognised how important their economy it is. And so they've done everything to try and keep the place open. But getting to the heat wave and the wildfires, the the really badly affected country was Rhodes. And what we saw when the wildfires were sweeping through Rhodes was that we got uh, an immediate a surge of cancellations, people saying we can't go to Rhodes. Um, And actually what you're looking at when you look at travel statistics is, do you get cancellations? So people who were going cancel, or do you get people just not booking? And, And just they go, well, I was about to go to Rhodes, but now I won't. What actually, saw... I was
1: going to go to Rhodes this summer, oddly enough. We were going to book a last minute holiday and we really tried to, like we were really willing to do it. And then we looked on the map at exactly where the wildfires were and it, would, it, it literally stopped about, you know, a centimetre on the map away from where we were planning to go. So we were one of those families that was going to go, but then didn't and went to Majorca instead.
0: So classic behaviour. There we go. And actually what we've seen is within a month, of the of the real wildfire breakout, all bookings are back to, to the normal pattern. So, one of the biggest things that one sees looking at, at travel data is how incredibly resilient people are um, when terrible things happen. Actually, once they're over, um, there's a, there's often what's called pent up demand, and people surge to go back. Now, during the wildfires, we saw a very slight improvement and the the whole heat wave, which which affected Europe uh, and and, and most of the Northern Hemisphere in a really big way. Um, During that period, what we saw was a slight improvement uh, in bookings for Northern Europe and the Nordic countries by two or three percentage points. But that was really all. And I would say that a lot of people make a lot of noise in the media over climate change, over climate disasters, heat waves You would not believe that if you looked at travel bookings.
1: Really interesting stuff. Clearly, we all have incredibly short memories. Uh, David Tarsh, spokesperson for Forward Keys, joining us here on the agenda uh, to give us the lowdown on their uh, global travel trends report for this year. Thank you very much indeed for your time. Very interesting to hear from you.
0: You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: This is The Agenda.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8.
1: Hello there. Welcome back to The Agenda. We're staying with travel now. Uh, Locally, it's fair to say we're never short of a new hotel here. It feels like we've got new restaurants opening pretty much every single week. But it has emerged that we are apparently seeing fewer new hotel openings than expected in our local market. Now, this is according to a report in the National Newspaper by Katie Gillett. Very good journalism because she has found that at least 10 hotels that had been expected to open across the Emirates next year are now said to be delayed until 2025 or beyond. Now, these include the much-heralded Kapinsky Floating Palace, the Mondrian, Abu Dhabi, and Six Senses, The Palm. Meanwhile, two proposed Cloud Seven glamping retreats in Ras Al Khaimah are also on hold, and the proposed Earth Altitude eco hotel in Jebel Jais has actually been cancelled. Uh, now, it's not sort of all delay and sort of negativity. At least two hotels are going to shortly open their doors in Dubai. That's including the One Zabil development, and that's going to be the f- uh, and also the first phase of Jamira's masa al arab which i keep a very close eye on because it's quite near to my house they've finished the landscaping does that mean it's nearly open let's find out joined now in the studio by ali mansoor who is head of hotels and tourism at the consultancy the cbre ali thank you so much for joining us in the studio how are you doing
5: very well thank you thank you for having me
1: very good to have you here okay so are you surprised to see this many delays
5: uh no so not really I read that article and I you know read the same things uh that you did uh, and for me it seemed quite normal nothing that was out of out of the ordinary and I sort of read it again and I was trying to f- trying to really understand what the underlying sort of message was and then after thinking about it a bit I thought maybe it's about perspective so if we can unwind a little bit let's talk about development and the development process now when you're doing your feasibility work, you would typically plan aggressively. You would you'd want a short, condensed construction timeline, realistic but aggressive. Uh, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't necessarily know about uh, the intricacies of the plot. There'd be a sort of fog of war because you haven't yet embarked on your, on your journey yet. Um, and you plan it, and it's all planned on paper. Then you get to the plot. You start excavating, and who knows? Maybe you have dewatering issues. No way you could have planned for that. That will cause delays. That will have extra cost. Let's say you get rid of that, this coral underneath that, even worse, you know, and you would have never known, uh, and that will cause delays. You could also have other factors within our development company: your CEO changes, your CFO changes, your CDO changes. All of these things would, could have never been anticipated, and every single one of these will cause delays. So when I read the article, it was I was sort of reading, okay, ten projects have been delayed. Um, but so has almost every project. So I, I'm pretty sure, just casting my mind back, I mean, I'm sure the Burj al-Arab, the Burj Khalifa, the Atlantis, everything has been delayed. Does it matter? No, because they'll have very, very good, good, good legacies after that. That's just the nature of the development process.
1: So we shouldn't be worried that there's some sort of darker underlying economic problem here, because this is why it was so... Uh, Such an odd story in many ways, because we had this, uh, like you say, you know, we've got this incredibly successful, booming economy, tourist economy now. You know, why would you not rush to open these hotels as quickly as possible? But it sounds like they are just quickly rushing them. It's not that some of them are going to quietly disappear.
5: Yeah, I I think so. I mean, if you're developing, you know, a four star business hotel in a central location that's quite sort of prototypical and, and quick to deploy, Maybe that would follow your initial plans. But some of these destinations that were mentioned in the article are, are, are very complicated. The ones that, that, that Sharuk were developing, for example, they're entire destinations with lots of moving parts. So there's a lot of considerations that go into this beyond just the, the bricks and mortar. Um, and, 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 you know, these, these things are often delivered not exactly in line with our uh, with expectations, you know, and then there was one, I think, uh, just from memory, I think the Wassel uh, building was mentioned on Sheikh Zad Road. I drive past that every day uh, on the way to work. That construction is going, you know, it's continuing forward. And, you know, Wussel is a living, breathing entity. They have lots of different decisions, different uh, sort of activities that they do, and, and they'll be, you know, of higher importance or lower importance. So I don't think it means anything. I mean, actually it, just actually, uh, just, to, just to round this off, when we did a study... A, a while ago, it was for different cities, Jeddah and Riyadh, and we looked at certain points in time and what was announced. So we looked historically at the beginning of a certain year, what was announced one year out, mm-hmm. two years out, and three years out, and then we looked what was actually delivered. And we did that for multiple years for both <laughs> cities, and what we found was actually there was an 80% that's eight zero delay rate for things announced that exact year for these two cities. It was ninety that were announced one year out, and hundred for things that were announced. Oh, so everything three years is
1: out. delayed, basically. Everything. It's everything very normal. Is delayed. Okay, well, let's look at an opening that we do know that we do have coming through, which is one Zabel, particularly big arrival like literally i think it's like something like 20 restaurants or something crazy when can we ex- you know when can we expect that to open and what should we expect you know is it going to have a big impact it's a big hotel it's right in the middle of the town is it going to have a big impact on the tourism sector here do you think
5: yeah i mean i, I would say so when it, i think we're moving now toward away from your traditional hotel you know a hotel with uh, two specialty restaurants uh, all day dining and maybe a limited spa into these more Integrated destinations, I think Wanzabeel is a good example of that, where you don't just have the bare minimum or, or whatever is required. You're not just requiring, uh, sorry, relying rather on room night demand. You also have all these ancillary facilities that you can also get, get, get revenues from. I am quite um, sort of positive about these developments that have multiple income streams and are more hedged. And I think that's the direction that we're going, you know, bigger developments with, which are more multifaceted.
1: So you've got offices, retail, yeah. residential, loads of hospitality. Um, okay, interesting. Let's look at the tourism sector. I think you've got about 30 seconds left with you. So a okay. bit of a broad umbrella question for 30 seconds. But looking at the tourism sector more widely here in the UAE, has it been a bumper year? Uh, and does it look like it's going to continue that way?
5: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in 30 seconds, uh, essentially, uh, what we generally say is that our, the KPIs are now reflective or somewhat up on where they were in 2019. But the buy specifically, you would assume that this means we're doing as well as we were before. This is not the case. In 2019, we had about 125 uh, thousand keys, give or give or take. Now we have almost 150. So that same occupancy is a significant uptick in room night demand and visitation. So the way and you know that is also considering the fact that visitation from China specifically, which has historically been a great source market, you know, has faced significant challenges. So I think that where we are today is not even, you know, we've kind of recovered to 2019. I think we're doing a lot better than than we were you know, two, three years ago.
1: We love a positive image. We love a positive answer, indeed, to end <laughs> on. Uh, so thank you very much, indeed. You've just been listening to the voice of Ali Mansour. He's head of hotels and tourism at the CBRE. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. This is The Agenda.
0: On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station.
1: Yeah, you're listening to the agenda. Georgia Tolly here with you until one o'clock and Saudi Arabia have been all but confirmed as the hosts of the 2034 World Cup. That is after they were left as the only remaining bidder. Australia had been expected to step up, but pulled out of the running uh, this morning, in fact. Uh, FIFA will now run a ratification process before officially announcing them as hosts. Now, Fulham boss Marco Silva rejected a move to the Saudi Pro League in the summer, but he says another winter in the World Cup wouldn't be the worst thing.
2: If you have another uh, break in the, in, during the winter time, it's not being going to be a problem because it's not going to be for the first time already.
1: Okay, let's get more reaction. A little earlier, I spoke to Safe Ruby. He's a football agent based here in the UAE. He does a lot of work in the English Premier League, but also in the Saudi Pro League. He gave me his reaction to the news.
6: Biggest wallet is one thing, but a lot of these nations have big wallets. doesn't mean that they're able to execute large sporting events and and do things in a good way. I I was at the boxing at the weekend in Riyadh, and the way they actually did the event and the production was, was amazing. So just because they've got big wallets doesn't mean that it's necessarily going to be an amazing production in the end. They still have to engage in, in, in a good way and, and manage things in, in a right way. Like, for example, in Qatar, nobody gave Qatar a prayer and a hope to organise a good World Cup. And it was arguably the best World Cup ever.
1: How about facilities? I mean, I know it's 10 years away, but they don't really have the stadia to house a, a World Cup at the moment, do they?
6: Um, No, they do. I mean, at the moment, they've got already, I would say, six stadiums in Saudi that are very good standards. Some of them are not big in size, but they have got 10 years to get that together. And what Saudi does have that, for example, Qatar didn't have is Saudi have a lot of space in terms of land. So for them to be able to build 10 stadiums dotted around the kingdom over a period of 10 years, to be honest, it's not going to be a big issue, especially the technology developing and building stadiums has improved so much in recent years. You know, a lot of this stuff is modular. You know, things can get made much quicker than they would do in traditional ways.
1: How about infrastructure from a sort of transport perspective? The uh, traffic in Riyadh, like it is in many cities around the world, many capital cities, is sort of legendary for how bad it is. You know, on average, it definitely takes about 45 minutes to an hour to get from the airport into town, for example. And then in rush hour, it is a real nightmare.
6: I mean, again, remember what Saudi is doing under the patronage, obviously, of Mohammed bin Salman since he took over has all been almost revolutionary. But the point is, they've decided to go in a direction on the world map, where they've always had big wallets, but they never really engaged in kind of wanting to do what they're doing to the world right now and between what's happening in Saudi and and, and the Middle East in terms of countries like UAE and Qatar they are making themselves a very attractive proposition to the world and obviously with Saudi and their infrastructure for sure over the next 10 years they're going to be improving all roads and access and things like that they have to do that anyway for their own people because there's a lot of people living in, in Saudi Arabia but you know one if and when The World Cup goes there. They're going to be ready in 10 years' time, no doubt about it.
1: Then there is the other question, which in many ways sort of Qatar answered. There are certain beverages, for example, that are not normally allowed to be drunk in Qatar and certainly are not normally allowed to be drunk in Saudi. Now, we all know what happened in Qatar. Certain regulations were lifted. And as you say, it is widely perceived that it was one of the best World Cups of all time. Do you see a similar situation happening with regards to the beverages and maybe a loosening of sort of behaviours from the perspective of clothing, for example, in Saudi Arabia for the World Cup as well?
6: From uh, what people are allowed to wear and things like that perspective, I think Saudi already is okay. Women weren't allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia before. Now they are, you know, women are pretty much at the forefront of the new Saudi Arabia. So unless you're planning to go out on the street naked, which I don't really advise from that perspective, there won't be an issue from the beverage side of things. I mean, again, Saudi Arabia as a economy and as a say tourist destination, they've positioned their tourism in a lot more of a different way to say that like the UAE, it's a lot more experiential. And, you know, the way they're trying to position their international touristic offerings. Is different, which is good because Qatar can't be the same as UAE. UAE can't be the same as Saudi. Saudi can't be the same as UAE. And also, look, everybody was crying in Qatar when they decided to sort of ban certain beverages before the start of the World Cup. But guess what? Everyone was amazingly behaved, had an amazing time. Women had the best time at World Cup in history. So in 10 years' time, if things get loosened up in Saudi, I don't think it will make a big difference because already the Qataris have shown that, uh, you know, people can enjoy themselves without being in a certain way. And actually, it was a lot more safer and a lot more fun for the world to watch and view.
1: So what type of impact do you think this is going to have on the popularity of football in the region? I mean, obviously, it's going to be positive. but, But I mean, what sort of acceleration do you expect?
6: Well, I mean, Saudi Arabia with the Saudi Pro League have already started You know, that process, obviously, last year when, or a year and a half ago, when they recruited Ronaldo as the spearhead of the marketing and the evolution of the league and and the sport in general. And obviously, since then, you've had a whole flow of world superstars come into the Saudi Pro League. That's also pushed the Qataris to go and reinvest into sport again. Obviously, UAE as well are trying them, you know, to do stuff themselves. But, you know, Saudi have a massive advantage because they have a massive population. Uh, but I think in terms of the development and the improvement, you know, all the different nations in the region, they're going to have to kind of step it up and improve their facilities, improve their offering. And and look, there's a lot more people moving from Europe to the Middle East now because they are viewing more opportunities compared to what's going on in Europe. So The fact that now Saudi Arabia are going to get the World Cup in 2034 means that now there's a target in place and and I'm sure they're going to achieve it in an amazing way. And in 11 years' time, let's say, I think things are going to be massively different in the region and hopefully uh, for the better
1: safe ruby their football agent based in the uae he does a lot of work in the english premier league and the saudi pro league great to get his insights there on that world cup in 2034 that looks almost 100 certain to be held in saudi arabia this is the agenda with georgia tolly
0: on dubai i 103.8 the uae's number one talk radio station
1: you're listening to the agenda here. Georgia Tolly keeping you company till one o'clock. Time now to turn to sport. And if you were listening an hour ago, uh, you might have heard producer Jennifer Crichton caught up with all the sporting headlines. And brilliantly, though she did, uh, have actually bought in a professional this time. Sorry, Jen. Uh, Robbie Greenfield, how are you doing?
7: The first time I've ever been called a professional.
1: <laughs> in what? In which field? Um, lovely <laughs> in <to> any ha- <laughs> field, Georgia. <yeah.
6: laughs>
1: lovely to have you join us on the line, Robbie. Uh, a few hours early before your normal shift starts. Obviously, uh, Robbie Greenfield, sports aficionado, but also uh, presenter of Off Script, which is your drive time show. um We're going to start with tennis because we had a shock exit from the Paris Open, didn't we?
7: Yeah, we did. The uh, Spanish Wimbledon champion, Carlos Alcaraz, lost to a lowly ranked opponent, Roman Safulin in the Paris Masters, a man ranked, I think, 44 places below him in the ATP rankings. He was actually really under, under par. He lost six three six four. did Alcaraz. And he hasn't really been himself, if I'm totally honest, since that win at Wimbledon because he lost that epic match in Cincinnati to Novak Djokovic, he got knocked out of the U.S. Open by Daniel Medvedev. Djokovic would go on to win that tournament again, of course. And I think that's that's maybe knocked Carlos Alcaraz's confidence a little bit. He's trying to reel in the Serbian legend for the, the end-of-year rankings, the, the world number one ranking come the ATP finals. But it now looks very much like if Djokovic has a strong tournament in Paris, he is going to wrap up yet another record-extending ATP world number one Kind of uh, run to the end of the year and, and confirm the fact that at 36 years of age, he is still the man to beat in tennis. We did think that that Wimbledon final had ushered in a new era, Georgia. We thought that with Alcaraz winning that match on a yes. court that Novak has been so dominant on, we really thought that maybe tennis had finally announced the changing of the guard. Maybe not. Maybe we have to continue with the dominance of Djokovic for maybe another... Year or two.
1: <laughs> well, to be honest, he's such a great player. I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that as well. Although I do love an underdog and Carlos was such a good underdog because he was winning, <laughs> to be honest. Well, I
7: mean, he wasn't an underdog. That was the thing. Yeah. He was world number one. Uh, but but look, I, I think it it's set things up really nicely for next year. Novak, yeah. we know how good he is in Australia. Uh, the French Open as well. The clay, Alcaraz is a strong strong player on that surface. So I think those are the two guys that are going to really challenge for the big titles. And, Frankly, I think it's great because Alcaraz has been... He's thrown down the gauntlet at Wimbledon and Djokovic has answered him. And uh, I think it's going to be really interesting when when we head into the the Grand Slam season for next year, starting in Australia in January.
1: Let's look at the Cricket World Cup now ongoing. Lots of exciting stories out of that.
7: So many. Yeah, the emergence of Afghanistan. They've done fantastically well. They're currently sitting mid-table in this big 10-team group. So they've done brilliantly. England have been utterly woeful they've they've absolutely collapsed they're the defending champions they are absolutely bottom of the table georgia on two points Mm -hmm. from six matches it's it's been shocking it's been an absolutely calamitous defense of their title but we're now getting to that point where we're looking ahead to the semi-finals the top four teams from the group will qualify currently those teams are india south africa new zealand and australia incidentally south africa and new zealand meet today so that's an interesting match And I'm starting to think that those could be the four that get through. Pakistan nipping at the heels. Afghanistan need a bit of a miracle in their final three matches. Pakistan have actually played seven. So they've only got two matches to come. They're going to need to win both of those matches. And they're going to need to hope that uh, New Zealand and Australia, well, the results don't go their way in the final three matches. I think we're looking perhaps at those four teams being the semi-finalists and what a semi-finals that would be. Australia have really come back into it after such a poor start, but India clearly still the team to be top of the table on 12 points.
1: Okay, let's talk about a golf story that totally threw me and Jen a little earlier because apparently there's a new golf league backed by Tiger Woods and it's going to start in January, but it's going to be indoors. Like, what's the deal? Yeah.
7: What? What? Yeah, it's it's uh, the strange world of golf just continues to proliferate and, and fragment, doesn't it? You know, after Liv and all the different kind of junctures that golf went off in last year, Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy got together and thought, you know, this is maybe a bit of a riposte to live. We're going to do something that's really forward-facing, that's really looking to the future, that's using technology. And they've come up with this uh, TGL League, which is backed by a company that they founded called Tomorrow Sports. And this is really using technology, using AI, using all the weird and wonderful things that I don't understand, and I'm not going to pretend that I do, uh, to, to create something totally different for a viewer, for a golf fan. It's a Monday Night League. It's an indoor golf simulator based kind of team event Uh, and uh, the simulator, not your regular simulator that you might go to at a driving range or even at a bar that you might find some around town here in Dubai. This one is massive. It's 64 feet by 46 feet. It's about 20 times bigger than a standard golf simulator. And then once they've played those shots into the simulator with the ball flight being computerized based on how they hit it again, Quite difficult to follow this but they're using really sort of very modern technology to, to to kind of bring golf into a different type of field and a different type of arena they then move to this 50 yard kind of short game area where they've got adaptable greens georgia with 189 actuators and jacks changing the slope of the putting surface for each hole so this is really Whoa. Uh, i mean this is this is like something out of the future it really is it sounds- and i have no idea how this is going to work. They brought in all the big guns. Tiger Woods and Rory McIlroy are fronting it. I think 14 of the top 20 golfers in in the world rankings are already signed up to it. And once again, it's a riposte to live golf. It's really saying to live, you know, we don't want you in our universe. We're going to do this team sport without you. And uh, they're they're trying to create something that, that is going to be really compelling, that is going to give people who love golf a bit of a different experience from a viewing point of view.
1: It's lame. It sounds dreadful. It, uh, I,
7: I, I'm going to reserve judgment until I've seen it. I have okay. my doubts. I'm, I'm yeah. a bit of a skeptic on this one.
1: It does sound dreadful. Robbie, lovely to have <laughs> you join us on the line. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm happy to be, I quite like watching golf. Um, it sounds like they've ruined it. Uh, anyway, we'll yeah, find out let's, more let's about see. it. Let's yeah.
7: see, let's see. Maybe, maybe it's their answer to darts. Like, <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure how they're going to do it, how they're going to, they're going to really need to ramp up the, the, the sort of event kind of, drama sort of circus around it the drama around it if you like cheer to really make it engaging
1: that's what they can have I think it's going to be.
7: I think, I think it might be quite gimmicky and maybe potentially quite tacky but they've certainly got the big names
1: they have I'll indeed. be tuning
7: in on the first edition for sure
1: Robbie ab- absolutely lovely to have you join us on the agenda thank you very much indeed Robbie Greenfield there uh, our sporting aficionado sporting correspondent here uh, at Dubai Eye 103.8 back on your airwaves from 5pm with Off Script. <music> The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.